0: Financial planning and security can sometimes be seen as a moving target. The rules change constantly, and you need guidance to stay ahead of the market moves. This is the Labenthal Report with Michael Hartzman and Dominic Tavella, with additional insight from industry veteran Jordan Kimmel. We'll break down the news, trends, and overall direction of the markets, telling you what may be coming next, investment opportunities, and what to avoid. Now, here are your hosts, Dominic Tavella and Michael Hartsman. I am Michael
1: Hartzman. Today is Tuesday, May twenty fifth, twenty twenty one, and I'm on, as always, with my partner Dominic Tavella. And good evening, Dominic.
2: Good evening, Mike. How are you today?
1: Good. How are you? No complaints. Another, another beautiful day. This time in New York. This time in New York. Thank God. And it is. It was a beautiful day. I was out inside for most of it, but it looked beautiful. I don't know about these markets
2: uh, making it a little bit uh stormy clouds, but uh we'll talk about that as well. Go yeah, ahead. well,
1: you know, that's a good that's a good tip-off because to me it just feels like it's the third or fourth week in a row where we just it appears the market's just looking for direction. Last week it was a kind of another flat week. And although year to date, most indices are pretty significantly. Not much has been added in the last three or four weeks. And it appears to me that the market is just trying to absorb inflation and trying to absorb, you know, the fact that companies can't find workers and trying to absorb all these supply uh, shortages. And I think once we work through those things, the market should pick up a little steam again. But right now, we just seem to be in a holding pattern.
2: Uh, I, I think uh, spot on on that one, Mike. Uh, look, we, we've year to date, even with a little volatility that we've had, the markets have had a pretty good year. Um, and a lot of that due to our expectations. And I think more important, our expectations being met. Mm-hmm. Over 80% of the companies in the S&P that reported better than expected earnings, better top line growth, bottom line growth. So the numbers have been pretty good. We were hoping, expecting, and now we got it. The question is what happens over the next three to six months. And we're, I think just the markets in general, are just trying to get their footing and maybe guess correctly. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised we're in this little pause state, the, the S&P, the Dow and the NASDAQ are slightly off their highs. Uh, we might go a little lower before we go a little higher, but I, I think we're in a good place.
1: I think so too, because if you look at some of the things the market's worried about right now, the, the the two the three big ones is inflation, supply chain shortages, and companies can't find workers. And yes, which is inflationary,
2: right? Correct.
1: Correct. And the inflation one is going to be hovering for a while, I think for a very, very long time. But the other two should be temporary. You know, the other two workers should come back once everyone has confidence that they're fully vaccinated and, and the vaccines work, which they do. And. Some of these um, benefits start to roll off and the supply chain shortages should fix themselves as well towards the third and fourth quarter for sure.
2: And that's the Fed's position on all this. And I think that's why the bond market has been, relatively speaking, quiet. Uh, In fact, we've had interest rates on the 10-year come down slightly. But the Fed's position is that these factors that in the short run are very inflationary will eventually roll over and calm down later part of the year. There seems to be some indication that that's already starting to happen, but Mm -hmm. that could be the, that could really be the big, big market mover going forward.
1: Yeah. And you know, the, the fed, I think I never heard this expression before they're calling this type of inflation transitory because I think they're believing it will be temporary as a result of the things we mentioned.
2: And we've talked in our past uh, podcasts, you know, price of lumber, the price of copper, um, you know, if the factories, the mines can't work, if they're not fully functioning, then there's a supply chain problem and therefore prices are going to go higher. But we've seen some of those prices roll over, at least start to move lower. And labor is a really big one. People aren't still 100% comfortable going back into the labor force. They are collecting I- expanded unemployment benefits. And listen, we have a lot of childcare uh, workers that are sitting at home that have no place to send the kids. The schools still are mostly uh, remote. So where are they going to send the kids to go back to the office? They can't. Where are they going to send the kids to go accept that job? They can't. So this is a problem that's going to take a little time, a little longer to fix. But I would think by the fall, we should be there.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of the states, including New York and New Jersey, have even already announced that September, all oh, the kids are going back. So well,
2: I would hope that the whole employment scenario gets better by about that time.
1: Yeah. And, and we're also expecting that the supply chain shortages get better around that time as well. They're, they're predicting the third quarter, which is obviously the fall. So this evening, we have greg serby who is the manager of the lamethal ultra short muni bond fund you know they're kind of our first cousins uh we share a name and um greg is going to talk with us this evening about the other long-term storm cloud and that is rising taxes rising capital gains and we really wanted to have greg on this week following ben Bennett Grutman's presentation last week because last week we had the problem and hopefully this week we come up with a solution. And back to market
2: movers, Mike, this could be a huge one depending on how bad the tax bite ends up being. I think something's coming in the pipeline and I think having a a person like Greg that can talk to us about how to shelter some of these taxable dollars couldn't be better timing.
1: I agree. So we will be right back with Greg Serby right after a quick break.
0: Financial planning and security can sometimes be seen as a moving target. The rules change constantly, and you need guidance to stay ahead of the market moves. This is the Labenthal Report.
1: All right, I'm Michael Hartzman, back with Dominic Tavella. And this evening, we have uh, Greg Serby from Labenthal uh, Muni Fund. I know one of his duties, your duties, Greg, is the ultra-short fund. Um, But I know your whole world revolves around munis. So so thank you for joining us tonight.
3: Well, well, thank you for having me. It's really a pleasure. And as you've said, uh, it's been my professional career has been involved in munis for many, many decades. And what we're looking at now, I think it's a perfect time to consider what to do and how to uh, structure the portfolio. I thought we could kind of cover three main elements. Number one, let's talk about credit quality because for the last year, that's all you've been hearing about uh, with all the terrible pandemic news. Let's talk about the direction of uh, where we think rates are gonna be going. And lastly, let's uh, think about taxes because all of this together melds into the price on a municipal bond. Uh, because it's a reflection of tax exemption, it's a reflection of future interest rates, and it's a reflection of the underlying sort of credit quality and their ability to pay in the future. So, first off, let's go back a decade. And remember back in about 2010, on 60 Minutes, there was uh, an analyst who predicted billions and billions and billions in municipal defaults. Well, didn't happen. And why didn't it happen? Even though decade ago, we were going through the mortgage crisis and everything like that. Part of it is for the simple reason that a municipality can have a problem and will cut back. But most of the time, debt service is a very small portion of the budget it may be five, six, 7%. So it does not make sense to default on 5%, which means that you now have no control over 100%. And municipalities got through it. Um, And as a matter of fact, some of the areas that over the last year we had been very concerned about, things like uh, sales tax revenue bonds, uh, hotel occupancy taxes, things that uh, are generating uh, normal income and paying off for stadiums and whatnot. With everybody staying home, there was no one uh, there. There was no revenues, they were very slim. So we were concerned about that. But on the other hand, we also knew that education will get back to a normal kind of cycle. So a good quality college bond, They're not going to default. They're not going to run away from their debt. They're going to figure it out. And that's what they've been doing. In the meantime, though, it provided an opportunity to get something that normally would not be that cheap relative to the best quality bonds. So, Greg, just uh,
2: quickly on that point. I mean, a lot of people weren't going over the bridges, so they weren't uh, the cities and the states weren't collecting the tolls, but a large component of the tax revenue came from real estate taxes, right? And people paid the real estate taxes on their properties. Absolutely.
3: Uh, you know, your, Including school district taxes. Totally, totally, totally. Your general obligation bonds all being met perfectly. Um, and yes, there's a lot of noise in the air and rightfully so. People were staying home, people were sick, people were dying. It, you know, literally was a very, very traumatic year. And as a matter of fact, that even showed up in interest rates. I made a little chart here. So if you'll permit me to just kind of refer to some numbers, Um, prior to the outbreak in January of 2020, just before, the short-term interest rate, SIFMA, which is sort of an analysis, uh, an analogy for uh, the short-term fund uh, was a 132. The treasury 10-year rate, a 188. The uh, muni 10-year rate using the MMD, the best uh, quality bonds was a 144. Munis were 77% of treasuries in the 10-year range. So that's about fine by the middle of March, when everything is going wrong, the short-term rate spiked up to a 5.2. The 10-year treasury spiked up to a 109, or spiked down, and yet the 10-year muni was a 169. Munis were 155% of the comparable treasury. That's totally unheard of. And it stayed that way through July, when. started coming down. It was like 133%. By year end, it was 77%. Right now, the muni rates are 64% of what the 10-year treasury is. And the short-term rate, because the Fed has been keeping short-term rates down, is seven hundredths of a percent. So it's very, very low, which is why you see your money market yields uh, basically almost flat. So what does that mean? Sooner or later, rates have to go up. They're absolutely going to. Remember back in 2013, when at one point, the Fed chairman at the time was musing that, yeah, rates are going to be going up. And the market had what they called the taper tantrum. So short-term rates all went up. The 10-year treasury went from 2 to 3% before it finally settled back down we'll get through this. We actually hope for rates to start moving up. Why? Because we've structured our portfolios very conservatively. So we have a lot of maturities coming up. And by buying high coupons, that means that we're getting a chunk of our principal back even prior to the actual maturity date. So as rates go up, we're going to be reinvesting in higher rates. They're not going to go up right away. The Fed is out there saying, no, it's not going to happen. This is temporary. Um, And, you know, who knows, it could very well be a temporary situation, or it could be a very serious situation where inflation does kick in and and lasts. Stay tuned on that. But again, having lived through the inflation of the 70s, we know that eventually the Fed will change gears if things get bad, and they will do what it takes to end it to wit, the Paul Volcker years, where the Fed was very unpopular, but made for a solid economy. So long term, we're looking forward to that. If rates can just gently go up and up, our clients are going to do better and better. But what's the other alternative that we're dealing with right now? And that's taxes. So if rates are going up, sooner or later, perhaps they do, what will happen? In theory, you would think that uh, bond prices will be going down to make the yields go up in the bonds. But tax-free bonds, on the other hand, have a very unique and special little niche because they're free from federal and in many instances, the state or local tax. If you're a New York resident, uh, you pay no federal tax and no New York state tax, if you own some throughways, if you own the Port Authority, the Triborough, uh, you know, Long Island Power, all these issues. So that's the counterbalance to an increase in interest rates, because as the tax rate goes up, the value of that municipal bond becomes even more intrinsic. And because the bond's tend not to be traded, we don't deal with the question of capital gains the way you would with a stock. Uh, Because if you're buying a stock with the idea you buy it at 100 and it's going to go to 150 and you're going to sell, well, if they do end up getting a tax bill that moves the capital gains rate up to an ordinary income tax rate, suddenly that's not as attractive. But in the meantime, the municipal bond just keeps paying its interest, paying back its principal reinvesting in a very kind of fundamental way. So the one is going to offset the other. Now, um, the other issue that I think is important to think about in taxes is the deductibility of state and local taxation. Right now, you have a very limited amount of what they call salt that you can deduct against your federal tax maybe it gets increased maybe it doesn't but tax-free interest stays tax-free doesn't go into that salt pod if you will and continues to provide you with a good fundamental return on your dollars invested now of course what you want to do is also diversify diversify by your maturities which is what we do diversify by the names you don't want all your eggs in one muni basket Maybe you own some Suffolk counties, maybe you own some Nassau's, maybe you own some Albany airports. Diversify, spread out. Obviously, as a New York resident, you want New York bonds if you're a Jersey resident. Uh, Maybe you'd like uh, some Port Authority, you'd like uh, Garden State Parkway slash Jersey Turnpike, things like that, and that's what we do. Now, I've been sort of talking nonstop here for a few minutes. Um, Let me turn it back over uh, to the crew here and answer any questions that uh, you have. So, Greg, one concern that I think our clients have in the last
1: several years, the government has tried to strip away some of the more sacred cows that you know regular taxpayers rely on. They 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 got rid of the stretch IRA benefit for non-spouses. They they're talking about now getting rid of the step-up in basis. Um, they, they, you know, they want to make the capital gains rate possibility income tax rate. These are things that would hurt not rich Americans, but regular blue collar, hardworking, middle income Americans. And every now and again, you hear about the tax deductibility of municipal bonds on the state and local level. And that's another sacred cow. Do you do you see the government attempting to ever trying to take away the deductibility of municipal bonds?
3: No. What I see happening in what has occurred in 2008, 9, 10, was where the municipality could issue bonds that maintain total tax exemption, interest is 100% tax-free, federal, and depending on the state, state state-exempt as well. And everything was fine. But in a way to stimulate the economy, the Treasury would allow the issuance of taxable municipal bonds, where they would pay 35% of the interest, not the principal, but of the interest. And these were the Build America bonds. And it was out there, it was very successful, lasted a couple of years. And what was interesting was, though, the interest that was paid, if you bought a as a New York resident and you bought a Build America New York bond, New York City, whatever, you still got the state deduction. So even if they uh, try and maneuver into more taxable munis, which we've seen from time to time, where you pay tax on the interest on a federal level, but the tax that you're, the, the interest rate is higher. So At the end of the day, pay me now, pay me later, but you're you're going to end up with a good tax exempt return so um, They they can never totally do away with that fundamental municipal the ability of a municipality to issue bonds that are tax free. Because every single local taxpayer would rather have their school paying less in interest than more in interest and especially because they may be some of the people investing in them. So I'm comfortable about that part of uh, the way the market's going. Okay.
2: Greg, um, we're hearing, especially now, and one of the reasons that we might get a tax increase is a big infrastructure bill um, and uh, maybe people realize or not, but those dollars coming for the federal government usually get matched in some capacity by the state. And we could see a big flood of municipal bonds by the state in order to marry that with the federal dollars to create these infrastructure projects. So, you see a, a big issuance coming down the pike and how would that affect the bond market overall?
3: I hope there is a big issuance. I mean, I hate to sound so greedy, but if there is a lot of supply that just means rates are gonna go up a little bit. It's not going to impact the fundamental credit of the municipality. Municipalities know what to do. They tighten their belt. Uh, Again, we were talking about uh, 10 years ago, think of New York State in the middle of a terrible, terrible mess. We have a governor who has to resign uh, and we have a temporary governor uh, and In 2010, New York State's budget is due April 1st. It was enacted August 3rd. However, the headline nobody ever saw was on March 23rd, the State House, the Senate, and uh, the Assembly, and the governor all signed the entire tax issuance for all the municipal bonds that were going to be coming due that year, whether there were General obligations of the state, the throughways, the UDCs, the HFAs, all the agencies. So they had been bickering like children. Terrible, terrible, terrible. Somebody blew the whistle March 23rd. It was like, oh, okay, we got to pay the bonds. Pay the bonds. Then they went back to bickering like little children all the way to August. So I welcome some good supply because that'll help maybe drive prices up. But there's such demand for it.
2: just for the record, he wasn't talking about now, right? He was talking about 2010. Yeah,
3: yeah. 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 That that set the standard, you know? It was like, and we've seen that uh, even poor Illinois, uh, who certainly backed themselves into a corner. They pay their bonds, then they argue about everything else and don't pay, uh, you know, this or don't pay that, but uh, they do pay the bonds and that's first lien.
1: Greg, just for a little context, you started the segment talking about credit quality and you talked in talking about the pandemic. And I remember, yeah, I remember all this nervousness about how how are they going to pay these bonds if no one's in the city, no one's on the railroad. But could you give our listeners an idea of how many defaults there actually were in New York in the last 12 months? Um,
3: Other than perhaps some funky you know, crazy little bond that was non-rated, there were no big issuers who defaulted, zero. Basically none. none.
1: So so once again, it's the headlines scaring the you-know-what out of people. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, you know, Muni's just kind of got through it and became that safe haven as they've always been.
3: It, exactly. And that's why I say and, and that's true on a
1: national level, right, Greg? I mean, yeah. if you look at overall,
2: the default rate on muni bonds is just excruciatingly low.
3: Excruciatingly. The joke is that it's less than one half of 1%. So now, if you're like me and you remember some of the old ads, remember Ivory Soap was 99 and 44 100% pure? Muni bonds are better. So, Dom, you have a I've question about them? Um,
2: I, I just want to switch gear because so we talked about the credit quality. We talked about, um, but wh- what are you thinking interest rates going forward? Uh, I know you spent a little bit about that, but that's probably the number one question we get. There really is some concerns about inflation and the interest rates could spike at least in the short run, could really spike dramatically and, and affect uh, an existing bond portfolio. Do you have much fear in the short term about that, Greg?
3: No. I, as I said, I hope that they do actually have a couple of little temporary spikes, much like we saw back in the taper tantrum in 2013, because that just gives a great buying opportunity. And if you bought a bond and you paid one or earning 1%, you're still getting 1% double or triple tax-free and if as the interest comes in and the principal gets rolling off because you have a series of different more uh, you know maturities you're just getting better and better and better returns over time and that's the goal munis are you know they're they're for time they're they're not uh, the quick flip our clients we never you know look to just have them come in do a quick trade and whatnot because all that does is puts money in the tax man. If you own a bond that we bought at, let's say 99, and suddenly it's now worth 101, if I flip that out right away, that means that the new bonds are probably gonna be around that same 101. So I gave up at better yield, booked a short-term capital gain, or maybe a long-term, but possibly tax now at maximum rate, so I can reinvest at a lower rate? That doesn't make sense to me. The the Muni portfolio is the sleep at night. It's, to me, it's exciting. Uh, I admit that it's probably not as exciting for most people. You don't have a lot of cocktail party conversation talking about how uh, you bought these throwaway bonds. Um, Whereas everybody wants to talk about how they got Amazon at uh, whatever or Apple at whatever, and now it's at such and such. But on the other hand, those throwaway bonds, you're rolling up to Albany and you're paying your tolls, you're going up on the Taconic and you're buying the gas and that helps pay the throwaways, they'll be fine.
1: Greg, no one cares how the sausage is made just as long as the sausage, sausage is delicious. (laughs) <laughs> and and all people care about is they don't pay any income tax on the dividends we pay them on your fund.
3: Mm-hmm. That's
1: it.
2: And it may not be exciting, but when the values of the portfolio stay consistent and stable and are not subject to the volatility, our clients are very appreciative. So thank you,
1: Greg. All thank well, you. Thank you. And thank you for joining us this evening. We are unfortunately out of time.
3: Okay. Well, any questions? Have them called. their uh, a uh, Labenthal rep and we can put together something. Perfect. Thank, thank you, you, Greg. Thank, thank you. you. Have, Have a great good night. Evening. You too. Bye-bye now. We'll be right back.
0: Financial planning and security can sometimes be seen as a moving target. The rules change constantly and you need guidance to stay ahead of the market moves. This is the Labenthal report with Michael Hartzman and Dominic Tavella. We'll break down the news, trends, and overall direction of the markets. Now, back to the Labenthal Report.
4: And welcome back to the Labenthal Report. I'm Jordan Kimmel, Chief Equity Strategist and Portfolio Manager. And it's really a pleasure to bring on a new relationship of mine, uh, Paul Henneman. And Paul is the founder and president of Value Engine. So, Paul, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. All righty. Well, we have a few minutes to really unpack everything. So let's take our time. And full disclosure, everybody, uh, I am personally, or Labenthal is, subscribing to this excellent service. It is a uh, tremendous service, which actually has a really great track record. Uh, My whole approach, Paul, is trying to de-risk our portfolio at all times. uh, I believe our portfolio strategy is good enough that the focus is on risk management. Uh, With Value Engine, what a great name. Why don't you share literally what you do, um, what the premise of it is, and then we'll dig a a whole lot deeper.
5: Sure. So uh, Value Engine is, at heart, a quantitative research company. And we've been doing this for over 20 years. It was founded originally by two Yale University professors of finance and myself back in the late, very late 90s. Um, And we run some very sophisticated computer models across thousands of stocks every day. So the goal, and particularly back then, over 20 years ago was a, a much more rare or much, we were really industry leaders, I think, in creating this quantitative modeling. And the idea is to process as much data as we can. Finance, one of the biggest problems is being overwhelmed with the amount of data out there. So we run some very sophisticated stochastic computer models across 5,000 stocks after the market close every day. We create a fair market valuation as our first model that carries over into a separate and distinct forecast model. And we produce forecast target prices one month, three months, six months, one, two, and three years into the future. And we specifically look at the one-year price target to create a strong buy, buy, hold, sell, strong sell signal. And we can apply these models across any groups of stocks as well. So we do value and forecast in indices, um, sectors, uh, custom portfolios, um, and we also do an ETFs. This is a relatively recent thing we've been doing for a couple of years. We can look at all the individual holdings of an ETF and then compute a buy, hold, sell recommendation and forecast for that. So this is all crunched up and uh, produced on our website and, and then through various data feeds like what we send to you guys. Um, and uh, updated constantly, and the goal is to always stay updated with big market changes. When new earnings reports come out, or there's changes to the interest rate environment, you know this is all um, analyzed uh, automatically by the computers across
4: thousands of stocks at the market close every day. Right. So, so let me jump in here, Paul. Here's the interesting thing: uh, when you watch CNBC and you hear the stock of the day, uh, you know they're showing reported earnings, which I've contended for years is very manipulated. Uh, you need to dig a whole lot deeper and and it brings up the subject of factor analysis Mm -hmm. we had on one one of your senior analysts herb blank a friend of mine for 20 years you're the founder of this company so Mm -hmm. i really wanted to have you on Um, the whole idea is not to run and chase stocks that are running but look more at intrinsic value uh, and and really what is a company worth what's the expectation and, and I have a, you know, I remember at least last week, I don't track your rankings, mm-hmm. um, but I will give you some, some, some props here. I believe Value Engine has a, a very strong ranking among your peer groups right now. And we're, we're very happy to be using your service.
5: Yeah, good, yeah, uh, uh, you're right. There's that independent source investors that track our uh, independently track our ratings along with several hundred other firms. And we've been very highly ranked on them for years. Um, uh, so we do use things like earnings. You know, the evaluation model is, you're absolutely correct, is a, is a value-oriented model. So the, that first core model is we're really trying to determine through this computerized automatic process, what is a stock inherently worth looking at the data? And we do use um, er- past earnings, future earnings going forward. Uh, we correlate to an interest rate environment. We use a 30-year treasury yield for that. Um, and then we use some very complex stochastic math on how we forecast some of those data points going into the future. And then we correlate to our forecasted data points for things like-
4: Right, so so I let me you make me a you confession give ourselves here that if I intrinsic, can. Intrinsic value that you're talking about. Let me make a confession if I can. People think I'm really smart or something like that. Um, we were on a call with Herb looking at all our portfolio holdings ranked several different ways. And then we actually take different columns and resort them mm-hmm. to look at, at how much risk is in the portfolio. Yep. So, so um. the whole premise, Paul, at Labenthal is not trying to be the first one top 1%. It's a strong return but risk reward return. yes, And, and I think the, the whole idea of value engine, when I came across it and I did my homework, it's something that we're happy to pay for. Uh, it's something that keeps our clients a little safer. And, and so let me even bring out the fact that um, I'm the smallest piece of Labenthal. Dom mm-hmm. and Mike run a lot of ETFs and mutual fund portfolios. Uh, I'm gonna bring them on shortly because you've recently started to be able to look into ETS, uh, which I think is a fabulous idea, but you're not actually, uh, well, well, hold on a second. You could use Value Engine all different ways. The way I use it is to continuously try to de-risk my portfolio. Yes. So so share maybe, uh, without getting too, wonky on on factors uh, how you go about that
5: yeah so we, we do use the models to achieve very different things and uh, you know as an example a, a very conservative portfolio that we run um, we'll do we'll run our screens and we'll come up with a uh, and, and we we back test this left right and sideways so we know that larger number of holdings means less volatility We know that looking at industry and sector diversification and not allowing the portfolio to really heat up certain sector groups that the models like more than others, but diversifying equally across sector groups uh, creates, um, lowers volatility, lowers returns a little bit, but takes out the risk. Uh, Increasing um, uh, market cap size, minimum market cap size, reduces volatility. Um, All these things, you know, kind of compile depending on how far down you want to get the volatility uh, and vice versa. We have some very aggressive portfolios that have just... Been through the roof the last 18 months or so, uh, and did extremely well in 2020. The opposite is true. So um, after February and March, for example, the the the, uh, the aggressive portfolios based on the models were loading up on transportation stocks. Everybody was terrified of transportation <laughs> stocks, but you know we said that's the model, and we we stuck it with them, and they have performed excellent. Now we're seeing a rotation kind of of these if the if the portfolio strategy is not regulated. Uh, we're seeing a lot of rotation out of the transportation stocks into medical stocks from the medical sectors, really strong move over the last couple of months uh, regarding that. So, um, you know, but with a, with a, to reduce risk, we wouldn't allow the model to really weight that medical sectors. You would look at our top rated stocks and a huge portion of them are medical, but you can diversify that out by uh, uh, running screens and looking at the best forecast or best rated stocks by sector group.
4: So, Paul, let me go up one level because again, you're in the forest, and 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 we, we need to back up a drop. Um, my main belief over the last several years is that the folks that lose money in the stock market are highly emotional,
0: mm-hmm.
4: and and the whole process of uh, Value Engine and and other you know models mm-hmm. that I use, other other sources is quantitative where it takes your emotion out and and helps Mm -hmm. you actually find value i love value growth and momentum uh it's super important for me to have risk management laid over what i do to damper volatility but the i want to bring out the point of if you're watching TV and, and you're listening to the portfolio managers, unfortunately, sometimes you're buying into what they're selling, mm-hmm. uh, what, what has worked real well over time. What you're looking to do is unpack where's the real value based upon historical data and taking the emotions and, and your guesswork kind of, and putting that on the side where it really belongs.
5: Absolutely. And and that's really the founding or the founding principle behind any quantitative firm like Value Engine. So, um, you know, how many investors would have had the, the wherewithal and the, you know, I guess the guts to start investing in transportation stocks in April? Not many on their own unless they had a model with a track record that has proven itself year after year. And these models were choosing things like Delta Airlines. And sure, earnings had plummeted, but the stock price had plummeted more. Uh, so the models pick the things up, picks up things like that. And it does take time to become, you know, faithful and to follow the model. Um, but we always tell, um, so we're doing one thing, we're modeling the stocks. And then every client, we've been working with you at, uh, at Labenthal with this as well, uh, how each client uses the models can be different. Exactly. But a quantitative process is all about creating a process that's repeatable. So if it works, you can repeat it. If it doesn't work, you can make little tweaks, you can change things. You know, you could come back to us and say, hey, you know, Paul, the Paul, the stocks that Leventhal is picking through value engine are too volatile. How can we reduce this? We've got a hundred ways that we could talk with you on how to reduce the volatility. Or if you say v- vice versa, you know, our volatility is under control. We're looking for to, you know, increase our returns a little bit. We've got a hundred ways on how we can do that. We pick one, two or three and we implement that. We track it, we track it, we track it. And if we it-
4: Right. And so, Paul, let me just say Works that there's, if it you know, mean people just. that are in the business less experienced want to tell you how smart they are. What I'm proud of is how smart of a team I've assembled. Uh, and it's almost got very little to do with me at this point. But the team I've assembled, the data I've assembled, the eyes that look over my shoulder. Uh, and I'm really, really proud of the fact that our success and, and our success at our SMAs, is all about a team approach rather than me reading tea leaves. So, so what I'd like to do here is let's ask Andrew or our champion engineer, I wanna bring on Dom and Mike uh, and, and Dom uses a lot of ETFs and, and and Mike as well. So let me actually turn over a little questions to them because uh, they don't know you as well as I have and they haven't <laughs> been on the calls that I have with you. So yep. fire away, Mike and Dom. Dom, you go first. Thank you. Hey, Paul, so, um,
2: you know, uh, Jordan kind of speaks glowingly about you. I was intrigued to understand that you guys are now doing this kind of research on the ETF side, and I I know all the ETFs are not created equally, and I'm not sure everybody understands that the underlying portfolio, what they actually own, drives drives that bus. So -hmm. are you guys looking at the individual securities of these ETFs? Are you looking at the momentum of the ETF itself, sector weighting? Give us a hint of uh, how you would help us uh, manage these portfolios.
5: So primarily, we are looking at the individual securities we are primarily looking at the individual securities uh, that the ETF holds. So we have data feeds that come in that tell us all the securities that are in the ETF. Um, we've got a great blog actually that Herb Blank, who was on the show um, uh, that Jordan mentioned, um, uh, writes up. And his last one was on uh, biotech ETFs. He makes the argument in in that particular blog that uh, biotech companies are certainly interesting, but highly risky, uh, uh, full of risk. So the best way to invest in biotech firms According to Herb's blog, is through a more diversified portfolio of biotech stocks. Well, if you don't have the time to put that together, there are some great biotech ETFs out there, and he compares four of them and shows how different all four of those uh, biotech ETFs are. And we're basically analyzing each of those holdings. Uh, the smallest one, I believe, had about thirty biotechs in that particular uh, in their portfolio, and the largest had over one hundred and twenty. So we're running these models that we already have on each individual stock compiling that together as a portfolio. In this particular case, those biotechs were strong buy rated uh, by Value Engine. We are seeing that rotation into medical um, stocks currently. Um, XBI as an example was one of them that uh, we really like particularly after it's pullback in price. Um, so we are treating uh, ETFs really and, and we can do that with any groupings of stocks whether it's some portfolios, anything. But in this case, um, an ETF we're treating it as a stock portfolio.
1: Paul, this is Michael. How are you? Thanks for being on tonight. Um, I know quantitative quantitative analysis, you don't fall in love with a stock, right? If you get a signal, either you're in or you're out. But how much time do you guys spend contemplating the tax implications when you get a signal that
5: says it's just time to cut bait? Right. So um, we do have a very, I think I, I think I can count on one hand the number of clients that we take tax concerns into account for. We do have some. Um, but for the most part, most of our work, we have no uh, tax concerns at all. We're, we're simply going for the strongest rate of return. For those few clients that we do work that, that with, we do, we do look at how strong the signal is indicating a buy or a sell And it may still fire off even if it's a higher tax um, implication for that particular holding, but it is biased to holding that stock for a longer period of time for tax reasons. But that that's quite rare. Um, For the most part, we're looking purely for returns, and most of our clients do assume they're going to fall into that higher um,
4: right um, short-term
5: capital gains tax bracket for most of the trades.
4: So, so kind of let, let me wrap it up because there's only a minute left, Paul. It's crazy how fast this time goes. Yes. Um, but, you know, a lot of criticism, if I get it, is about turnover. It's a really interesting question. Mm-hmm. Um, I had, uh, we were talking to Michael Steinhardt who had one of the highest returns ever. He said if he, he had a regret, it was being a little bit less tax efficient than he wanted to be. But in the end, the total return uh minus taxes fees and and everything else is really what we're geared upon yes and um i'm just really excited the fact that our relationship started um and i know herb forever and and i think you guys are doing a great job so i appreciate you coming on I'll, i'll say again you know we are subscribers uh we love what you're doing and, and as importantly, I love the follow-up individual calls you're willing to have with me. I'm sure you do that with your other clients. So look into the portfolio, not just preach about what you think, but look in our portfolio to see what we own. Maybe make us a couple suggestions about de-risking. The whole idea here at Labenthal is great returns, but really focusing on risk and that's where Value Engine has been a big help to me. I wanna thank you for coming in and um, we'll take a real quick break. We'll be back more Labenthal Report following the real quick break.
0: Financial planning and security can sometimes be seen as a moving target. The rules change constantly and you need guidance to stay ahead of the market moves. This is the Labenthal Report with Michael Hartsman and Dominic Tavella. We'll break down the news, trends, and overall direction of the markets. Now, back to the Labenthal Report.
1: All right, I'm Michael Hartzman, back with Dominic Tavella. Don, we had two great guests tonight, Greg Greg Serby and and Paul Henneman. But, um, you know, Paul's comments were really fascinating to me. This whole quantitative analysis, really at the end of the day, what that's all about is don't fall in love with your stocks.
2: Mike, uh, as always, you're, you're spot on. Um, we, How often in our practice does a new client walk in the door and they're looking at their portfolio and they're like, I don't understand. The market's doing this and it's doing great and I'm not. I'm like, well, you, you own these things. Why do you own it? Well, you know, I bought them five years ago and I'm uh, making money or I was making money or I'm losing money. But there's always an excuse, right? Mm-hmm. I can't, can't get out. Well, you can't be emotionally involved in these decisions and make the right decision. It just usually doesn't work. It just
5: and, doesn't work.
1: And I agree with all those emotions, but I, the, the emotion I see more frequently than any of those is I inherited this from my parents and they told me never to sell it, whether it's ExxonMobil or Ford or GE. I mean, GE hasn't done anything in, I feel like decades, but I, my dad told me, Never to sell my GE, it pays a dividend. Uh,
2: Mike, I I mean, I want to laugh about it, but it is not funny. Both of you and I have been in the business for over 30 years. We have clients that have been with us for over 30 years, and they hold that same position in the portfolio for 30 years waiting for it to come back. Uh, And you think about if you had gotten rid of it 20, 30 years ago, harvested a tax loss, there's value in being able to write those losses off and put that money even in an index, right? And just close your eyes. your client would have three, five times as much money as they do today. They're still waiting.
1: Dom, I wish I had a nickel every time Nick, our trader, called me and said, so-and-so client has X stock in their portfolio. Can I sell it? No.
2: (laughs) And look, even though- clients come in with these positions we still have a responsibility we still do monthly quarterly reviews we get analytic ratings we get paul and other firms to send us analysis and we're looking at the same thing every time going oh my god when are they going to let me do something about it right but um look at the end of the day we do the best job we can and we use the smartest people in the room, or in this case, Greg and Paul and people like them, to give us as much feedback and advice as we can get to try to make as good a decision as we possibly can.
1: Yes, and at the same token, we joke around about it, but we do have to respect our clients' wishes and, and and respect the fact that if Dad and Mom told them not to not to sell that position, you know, we can't beat them up. We just have to more often than not work around those wishes um, because. Yeah, they're not quants. They're not quantitative analysts, and 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 it is emotional. You know these stocks.
2: Yeah, I, I, I have one client. I'll share real quick because we're running out of time, Mike, and she said to me, "You just don't love anything, do you?" And I'm like, "I don't have any emotional attachment whatsoever. It either is going to work for us or not. And if it doesn't, it's out the door. You're gone, right? So no, I don't. I don't get emotionally attached to anything. I mean, well, my wife and kids and grandkids, but that don't count."
1: Well, you should have got me on the phone because I would have told you you love the New York Jets. And what has that gotten you?
2: Well, uh, a lot of heartache. <laughs> and that's why you
1: don't get emotionally attached. We don't need the heartache. Perfect, perfect segue. And the perfect way to end the show, Dominic. Have a great evening. And we will be back next week. Looking forward to next week. You too, Mike. Have a great
2: evening.
0: Thanks for tuning in to the Leventhal Report. Dominic, Michael, and Jordan will be back for our next program, airing next Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time and 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until then, have a great week.